book of Acts, and this morning we'll begin at chapter 22, verse 22, and then we'll read to chapter 23, verse 11. We're continuing on with Paul's defense. Um, He just finished uh, explaining to the Jews how he was met by Christ on the road to Damascus and then how he was called to the Gentiles. They were utterly appalled by that. And we read in verse 22 of chapter 22, Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth! For he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum, Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you to sit and judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if an angel or a spirit spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood beside him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, 
so he must testify also in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for how it instructs us. We thank you for how it teaches us new things. We thank you for how it reminds us of old truths that we forget, but are so important and so powerful for our Christian lives. Father, send your Holy Spirit this morning to see the great truths contained in this passage. For our comfort and for our courage, we ask this. Amen. may be seated. I've said this before, and I'm sure I'll say it again, but often Christians are nicer than God. Uh, One of the reasons for this, I believe, is because of a misunderstanding found in Matthew 5.39. In that passage, Jesus said, If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In other words, Jesus is saying, Don't return insult for insult. Um, If somebody makes fun of your father, don't respond by making fun of their mother. Someone makes fun of your brother, don't respond by making fun of their sister. Don't return insult for insult. Don't stoop to their level. By doing so, you become just as foolish as they do. Now, I think because Jesus said that, we misunderstand His words and think, Therefore, it's never appropriate to use satire or to use strong language or even to use offensive language to put another person in their place. Jesus is not saying in this passage that you can never stand up for your rights. He's never saying that there isn't a time or a place to use strong words, even offensive words. In fact, I would argue that sometimes people need to be offended and we should give offense. Let me give you just one example from Matthew 15. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Matthew 15. In this passage, we see Jesus intentionally being offensive. Here's the context beginning in verse 1. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Okay. In other words, they don't go through the ritual cleansing by washing their hands when they eat. This isn't about cleanliness. This isn't about doing away with germs so you don't get sick when you eat. This is about religion. And what the Pharisees are doing is adding commands to Scripture. This is legalism here. And they're rebuking Jesus for not adhering to the commands or the traditions of the elders. He responds, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God's commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. 
So for the sake of your tradition, you may have made void the word of God. Let me explain what's taking place here. There was a gift that you could give, that you could set aside for God. And then the religious leaders could say, sorry, mom, sorry, dad. I know I'm supposed to provide for you in your old age. And I would with this money, but it's set aside for God. And then what would happen is later their parents would die. And then they would take that money set aside for God and they would use it for selfish purposes. So really, they were just using traditions that they had made up to get around the commands of God. And Jesus calls them on it. And then he says this in verse 7. You hypocrites. Ow. You Hypocrites. And then drop down to verse 12. We won't go through all this. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? <laughs> I love it. I, I think this is absolutely hilarious. I, I picture Jesus saying, They were? I offended them? I hope they can find it within their hearts to forget, I never intended to offend anybody. If I were there, I would have turned to Peter. I don't know if it was Peter. It was probably Peter. He was the one I was speaking. I would have turned to Peter and said, Peter, <laughs> why do you think Jesus called them hypocrites? It was His deliberate intention to offend them. That's what happens when you call somebody a hypocrite. You offend them. And again, Sometimes people need to be offended so that they can wake up to their behavior. Now, one caveat here, okay? This is not to be used so that we can be harsh, mean-spirited Christians who just walk around giving offense to everybody and say, well, Jesus did it. Okay? Jesus was very careful when He gave offense. And usually, it was to the religious leaders. We'll look at another passage later. Matthew 23, the religious leaders, and he did it to people who knew better. He didn't offend people who didn't know any better. He did it to people who knew better and were hard-hearted and needed a stern word so that they would wake up to their behavior. So again, there's a place to give an offense, but we need to be careful where we give this offense. We don't want to just walk around again giving people offense. Now, I mention this because in this passage, Paul is going to use some strong language. And I read through some of the commentaries, and they say Paul was inappropriate with his speech. He should have been more careful. He should have been more judicious with his words. He should have been more kind. And I think they're wrong. I think everything Paul said in this passage was appropriate, and I'll explain why. And what I want to do this morning is point out the four times in this passage where Paul speaks in such a way that he gives offense and he should give offense. He was wise to give offense. He was appropriate to give offense. And he followed in the footsteps of Jesus by giving offense at the right time and to the right people. Now, the first offense begins our passage and again, let me remind you of the context. Um, Jesus is responding to the Jews. This is his first offense. He mentions that he was a Jew, that he was raised a Jew. He was raised in the city of Jerusalem. 
He studied at the feet of Gamaliel that he was zealous for the law. Matter of fact, he was so zealous for the law, he was persecuting Christians, carrying them off to jail. Not only was he doing that in Jerusalem, but he got papers, legal orders, so that he could go to Damascus. And while he was going to Damascus, he relays how Christ met him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord responded, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuted. And then he talks about how Ananias restored his sight, how he was baptized. He called on the name of the Lord, washing away his sins. And then he talks about how he was praying in the temple. Verse 17, he fell into the trance and he saw the Lord saying to him, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And then in verse 21, he says, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that Paul motioned with his hand. The crowd got quiet. And then he spoke to the people in Hebrew, their native tongue. And then they got real quiet. So they are listening to Paul up to this moment. But now there's going to be a violent reaction. And this is what we read in verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him that he be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined. Once again, the crowd just erupts with anger. Why do they erupt with anger? Because Paul mentions that Jesus told him, go away from the Jews. They're not going to accept the Gospel. You go to the Gentiles. And some have said that he shouldn't have said this. They were listening to him. He had their attention. Why did he have to mention this? This wasn't too wise of him. I want to say quite the contrary. This was very wise because you know what he's saying? You also are rejecting the Gospel. You're rejecting it. And the reason why I went to the Gentiles and why I'm going to go to the Gentiles again is because the Gospel is for the whole world. Jesus Christ is not just the Savior of Israel. He is the Savior of the world. As John the Baptist said, He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the what? The world. And all He is doing is telling the truth. This is what Jesus said to me. This is what... What I should do. His only other alternative would to be quiet. Why should he be quiet? Why should he not tell what God told him to do? Because people were upset. Here's something we have to realize. When we say something to people and they get angry at us, it's not always our fault. It's not always our fault. And, and we live in a culture when people get mad, they say, well, what was said to them? Why did they get angry? And sometimes it's just assumed well, they must be angry for a good reason. Not always. Not always. These Jews, they are livid. They are outraged. And once again, they're ready to tear Paul limb from limb and kill him because of what he's saying. And again, I submit to you that he didn't say anything inappropriate. He is just relaying what Jesus had said to him and why the Gospel is going to the Gentiles. And if they had read their Old Testament carefully, they would see that all along God promised 
that the coming Savior would be the King not only of Israel, but of the world. So I don't think Paul was inappropriate whatsoever. So the tribune orders him to be brought into the barracks. Once again, this is for his own safety. Saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So the Roman tribune, he is watching this utter pandemonium and he can't figure it out. He's saying, I don't know why there's such a strong reaction against this guy. What is he saying that is so offensive? He can see they're offended like crazy, but it doesn't make sense to him. So they're going to get to the bottom of this. And how are they going to do that? They're going to flog the Apostle Paul. And verse 25 says that they actually had him stretched out for whipping. He probably was stretched out over a table. And this is how flogging worked. And Jesus was flogged, so this may sound familiar. But to flog somebody, you'd have a stick, maybe about this long. And at the end of the stick, you'd have these leather straps. And maybe at the end of the leather strap, you would have these lead balls, so they'd be hit over the back. The balls would go right into their back, bruise them. Then all along the leather strips, you might have glass or broken pieces of bone engrafted into the leather straps so that the flog would come down over the back. You'd be beat with the balls, which would make you black and blue, and then you'd pull it, and the bone and the glass would literally strip the back bare. Which is why Isaiah said that by the stripes of Jesus were healed. That's a specific reference to flogging. It literally resulted in stripes in the back. Now the Jews, according to the law, couldn't flog a person more than 40 times. So they had what was known as the 40 lashes minus one to make sure they wouldn't go over the law. And if I remember correctly, Paul received that three times. I I could be wrong. The Romans had no such limits. And it wasn't uncommon for someone to be flogged by the Romans and actually be put to death by flogging or to be crippled for the rest of their life. This was a very heinous punishment. This was definitely torture. And they were going to torture Paul in order to get an answer out of Paul as to what he was doing to disturb all these people. Because they've seen it twice now within this one defense that he's disturbing these people. They want to find out what's going on because it's just disturbing the whole city and they can't have this going on in the city. Just as they're about to do this, Paul says to the centurion who was standing by him, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned. Now, not too many criticize Paul at this point. He appeals to his Roman citizenship. It was illegal to bind a Roman citizen, much less flog a Roman citizen without him being condemned. And you may recall that Jesus was crucified, something that would never happen to a Roman citizen because that was considered too heinous for a Roman citizen. Paul is a Roman citizen and he appeals to his rights here. He says, Is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. 
So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. That's all Paul had to say. Yes. Then the tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Now what you need to realize, in our culture, if you're born in America, you're a citizen. It didn't work that way in Rome. You weren't automatically a Roman citizen just because you were born in Rome. You had to either, one, buy your citizenship, and we see right here that it takes a lot of money to do that. I mean, it wasn't just go down to the courthouse, you know, pay $10 and you become a citizen. No, you had to pay quite a large sum of money to become a citizen. It was a big deal. Paul says, I was born a citizen, which means that his father or grandfather perhaps both, were already citizens. And another way in which you could become a Roman citizen is by being a very influential people, or excuse me, a very influential person who attributed or contributed much to Roman society. So most likely, Paul's father, grandfather, or both, gave much to the empire, and because of that, they passed down this Roman citizenship to Paul. And again, it was very advantageous for Paul. And on this occasion, it provides him with much safety. And he says, I am a citizen by birth. Verse 29 says, So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. Here's the operative word. Immediately. Immediately. And the tribune also was afraid. For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he had bound him. Why did they withdraw immediately? Why was he afraid? Because what he had done was illegal. It was illegal to treat a Roman citizen like this, and he could be punished in turn. So he was afraid, and we said, we've got to stop this immediately, or he would be in trouble. So Paul spoke up, he defended himself, and it was very appropriate. Verse 30, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews. Okay, the tribune is still trying to get at the bottom of this. He still doesn't have any answers. He unbound him. That's very important. He is not bound. He, he's, he's free, being very careful. And commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down to them and set him before them. Brought all the barracks down the stairs before probably what is the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish ruling council made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, of which most likely Paul had been a member of years earlier. Which means that most likely Paul knew some of the men who made up the Sanhedrin. It was made up of 70 men. He probably knew some of them. And that's probably the significance of verse 1 where it says, and looking intently at the council. Probably just took his time, looked intently, and just caught eye contact with, with people in the room. And just maybe with his eyes said, you remember me. You know who I am. I, I used to be a part of this council. He went right around the room. And then he said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That's how he began. Now, that's very significant. And I think it accounts for one of the reasons why Paul 
was so courageous. He had a clear conscience before God. Clear conscience is a powerful thing. Too many of us play games with our, our consciences and we, viol- and we violate them. I think of the story of the conscience-stricken taxpayer. He wrote a letter to the IRS and he said, Dear Sir, I have had great difficulty sleeping. Here is $250 which I owe in back taxes. And at the bottom of the letter was a P.S. that read, If I am still unable to sleep, I'll send in the rest later. <laughs> the truth is, too many of us violate our conscience like that. We, we, feel, we feel guilty. It, it's a sin. I don't know if you know this. It is a sin to violate your conscience. Paul says in Romans 14, whatever is not of faith is sin. And it's interesting, we don't hear much, much talk about the conscience in pulpit these days, but the Puritans talked a lot about the conscience and how you never wanted to violate your conscience. Now, it doesn't mean that your conscience is infallible. It's not. It's part of human nature. It's not infallible. It can, it can be wrong. You can do something and feel guilty and you should have no right feeling guilty at all. You you didn't sin. There are other times when you can sin and not be bothered and you should be bothered. So we want to be careful. Uh, Those who grew up with Jiminy Crickets, remember him? Let your conscience be your guide. We want to be a little careful. Scripture is to be our guide. But we don't want to violate our conscience. We want our conscience formed and shaped by Scripture, so that we feel guilty over things that we should feel guilty over because they violate Scripture, and we should feel at liberty to do things that we're free to do because we're not violating any commands of God. We're enjoying what God has called for us to enjoy. And over time, you should experience great, greater liberty on one hand when you realize, I'm free to do this. And on the other hand, you should grow and you should say, you know what, I really shouldn't do this. I'm feeling more and more uncomfortable about this, but you want to be careful not to violate your conscience. And in Acts 24.16, Paul says, I always strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So Paul begins by saying, you know what? I have a clear conscience before God. After he said that, for whatever reason, it annoyed the high priest and he commanded that those who stood by the Apostle Paul Strike him on the mouth. So that's all he says. He just says, I've had a good conscience before God up to this day. Strike that man, someone near him. I don't know what they did. Maybe maybe he made a fist and they just smack him right across the face. And Paul responds, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? Was this appropriate? One commentator, an evangelical commentator said, this was angry, impulsive retaliation. Paul had momentarily lost control. That's one option. The other option is, Paul had lost control whatsoever, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, said what he said. And I submit to you that the latter is the case, not the former. Is Paul just name-calling here? You whitewashed wall. Is that just name-calling? 
You know, your grandmother wears combat boots. I mean, is he just saying, you're going to do this, I'm going to make fun of you? What does he mean, you whitewashed wall? To understand that term, you have to understand a little bit of the first century. Tombs were often caves. Jesus was placed in a cave, you'll recall. And then they put a large stone over the mouth of the cave. And what they would do, so that people knew these were tombs, uh, tombs, they would paint them white. And then you would know that's, that's a tomb. There's bones in there. You want to stay away from there. A whitewashed wall was a person who looked nice and clean on the outside, but inside they were full of dead man's bones. And by calling the high priest a whitewashed wall, Paul was saying, you're a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. You pretend to be something on the outside, but you're not the same thing on the inside. Now, was that true? It was absolutely true. Notice what he says. Are you sitting to judge me according, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Paul was absolutely right. You're judging me according to the law. I haven't violated the law, and you command me to be struck against the law. That's a hypocritical judge. It was more than appropriate for Paul to point out his hypocrisy by calling him a whitewashed wall. And by the way, if you think that Jesus wouldn't approve of such language, let me remind you that Jesus used this kind of language. And I think Paul learned to use this kind of language from Jesus Himself, who when He wanted to, when appropriate, was very good at giving an offense. This is what we read in Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're a hypocrite. You're full of lawlessness. And what you just did was a violation of the law. Paul didn't lose control. He knew precisely what he was saying. What he didn't know is who he was saying it to. He didn't know that the high priest had ordered this. Those who stood by said to him, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul wasn't aware of it. The high priest probably didn't have time to put on his robes, so he didn't recognize his position, something along those lines. So Paul apologizes. He says, I never would have said it if I knew it was the high priest because it's inappropriate to say that to a high priest. I would have shown respect. But the great thing is, Paul says, I would have shown respect if he was the high priest, but by the way, he's not deserving of respect, which became very, very clear with his response. So I think his response was very very appropriate, and it was not out of line at all. The fourth response of Paul that people think is wrong comes in verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, 
He cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. So when he says, I'm on trial for my hope and the resurrection of the dead, there was a sharp division. And by the way, again, Paul is very intentional. Luke sets it up this way. Paul looks the group over and he perceives there's Pharisees and there's Sadducees. Why is that significant? And we're told in the passage, just in case you don't know, the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of dead. They also believe in the existence of angels and spirits, those who are still alive after they die. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. And they don't believe your spirit is still alive after death. That's why they're so sad, you see. Okay. I know it's corny, but maybe it'll help you to remember the difference. Okay. So Paul says, this is what I'm on trial for. My hope of the resurrection. And someone said that was inappropriate because when he said that, he just caused all this division. And then once again, there's this great turmoil and they want to tear him limb for limb. He should have been more careful. But what was Paul doing? Previously, he said, Jesus of Nazareth appeared to me on the road to Damascus. And again, in case you weren't here, everybody knew who Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody. They knew he was the one who claimed to be a prophet, who healed people. And then he was crucified and the message was going out that God raised him from the dead. And Paul is saying, God raised him from the dead. I know because I saw him with my own eyes and he appeared to me. And not only was he raised from the dead, but all of us who put our faith in him will as well be raised from the dead. And I'm on trial because I believe that he was raised from the dead. And I believe that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ will be raised from the dead as well. That's why I'm on trial. Is that inappropriate? That's the gospel. Again, this is nothing less than the gospel. And again, he was being smart. He was employing a great strategy. Divide and conquer. That wasn't foolish. He was very smart. He knew what was going on. Again, he is saving himself so that he's not torn apart and put to death. And we have to realize that when we testify to the gospel, I mean, we could say something as innocuous as to our neighbors, and it's a great holiday season. I love sitting, celebrating Christmas. I love to be reminded of how God came down from heaven, took on flesh and blood, and became one of us. Isn't that just remarkable? You, you could just say that alone, and, and don't be surprised if there's a response. Is that your fault? not your fault. You're, you're just trying to share the gospel with your neighbor. That's very appropriate to do. And if people get angry and upset, that's not our fault. The only other alternative, again, is to keep our mouths shut. And I've said this before, and we've seen this very often in Acts. That's often the goal. And here's, here's what I've noticed with commentaries, too. And you have to realize this when you read a commentary, and you have to realize this when you, when you listen to a preacher as well, because I'm just giving you my commentary. I could be wrong. But not only do commentaries comment on the text, but that comment is also based on who they are. So when I read, you know, that was inappropriate, what they're saying is, in my mind, I believe what Paul was doing was inappropriate. 
and, and if they're going to say that, I have, to, I have to have proof. Show me why you think that was inappropriate. But I think the commentaries are saying that. You don't find this in the older ones, but the commentaries are saying that because they believe that as Christians, we just have to be nice all the time. We should never use terms. We should never cause offense. We should be careful how we talk to people. We don't want to upset people. So I read the commentaries and sometimes I say, I think the commentary is more on you than it is the passage with this interpretation. But that's just a side note to pay attention when you're reading commentaries. Well, the dissension, according to verse 10, became so violent that the tribune was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces. And and that's a strong word. This word torn is used of another occasion of a demoniac who tears apart the chains that they have bound him with. So it's it's a strong tearing apart. And again, it probably would have resulted in his death. So he commands the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Take Paul by force so that he can be rescued. Now, think of all that's taken place. Let me just back up a little bit. This all began back in chapter 21 when Paul finally arrived in Jerusalem and his teaching was being distorted. And when he came to the temple... uh, People said that he was teaching against the people, against the law, and against the place, and that he had brought uncircumcised Greeks into the temple, violating the law, even though that wasn't true. But the false rumors spread. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. They shut the gates, and they were seeking to kill him. The tribune hears about this. They come down. They rescue Paul. They're going to take him to jail so that he can be saved from this angry mob. On the way to jail, Paul says, Could I have a moment and speak to the crowd? The tribune says, okay, I'll give you a moment. Paul speaks to the crowd. He relays that he's a Jew. He relays his conversion experience, how God has sent him to the Gentiles. And once again, the uproar starts again. They want to rid the earth of him. They want to tear him limb from limb. The Romans take him captive. Now the Romans want to beat him this time to figure out what's going on. He appeals to his Roman citizenship. And then the next day, again... He speaks to the Jews once more trying to defend himself. The Romans trying to figure out what's going to play. And once again, they want to tear him limb from limb. And again, the Romans have to arrest him so that he can be saved. Now, how does one man endure all this? And not only endure all this, but continue on like the Energizer Bunny. Just continue on. And How does he do it? And one profound answer comes in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I love this. The Lord stood by him. I remember years ago when we were going through the book of Genesis, all all throughout that book, um, God would appear to Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Joseph, and I would pay very close attention to how it was described. Uh, Sometimes the passage would say something like, and the Lord spoke to so-and-so, and then he ascended. And I would read that, and I'm like, that's very interesting. So that means that somehow 
He descended, made His presence known, and then He went back up to heaven. On, on another occasion, it was told that Abraham was spoke to, and then the book of Acts says that the God of glory appeared to Abraham. And I thought that was fascinating. So that means when God spoke to Abraham, He made His glory appear to him. So I pay close attention to those details. In 18.9, Paul is praying and the Lord speaks to him in a vision. And then in 22.17-18, he mentions that he was in the temple and he fell into a trance and the Lord appeared to him and spoke to him. But that's not what happened on this occasion. This says the following night, the Lord stood by him. I take that very literally. He's not having a vision. He's not in a trance. He's saying this is at night. And he's saying Jesus stood right there. And Jesus said to me as he's standing right there, take courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. That's how he was able to do it. If you turn ahead to 2 Timothy 4, This is what Paul says to Timothy in verse 16. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. And then he says, May it not be charged against them. So by the way, maybe you haven't noticed that something is conspicuous by its absence in this defense of Paul. And what's conspicuous by its absence are his companions. Where are they? They're nowhere to be found. Paul's been deserted. He's been deserted. And he says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me may not be charged against them. Verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, from the Jews who were about to devour him. Isn't that great? So in Timothy, when Paul says the Lord stood by my side, I take that again very literally because that's what happens in Acts. The Lord stood right there, said take her, and the Lord strengthened him. That's how he was able to go on. And here's what we need to realize. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. He has promised that He will never leave us nor forsake us. I, I mentioned this at our Thanksgiving Eve service. It's a reoccurring theme, but I love it. Joshua was told by the Lord, Be strong and courageous, for I am with you. God is with us. Imagine if God would open our spiritual eyes and we would realize, I'm not alone. Jesus is right here. It'd be glorious. As I was laying in bed last night, I was, I was just going through the message in my mind. And, and I, was, I was thinking through this passage and my eyes were closed. And I, I half expected when I opened my eyes that Jesus would be standing right there in my bedroom. And just like, he, He's here. He is here. I, I just, He is here. He is present. He has promised, I will never, never, never leave you nor forsake you. And again, if God would open our eyes, we 
could see Jesus standing right here and He would look at each one of us. I am with you. Be strong. Be courageous. We are so blessed. And if I, I can, just quickly, and I, I apologize for those of you who already heard this on Thanksgiving Eve, but we went through Psalm 93 and we looked quickly at two definitions of goodness. And one definition of goodness is defined as prosperity. Asaph says, Surely God is good to Israel. He says, But for me, I almost slipped. I almost fell away. I almost turned away from the faith because I became envious when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said, I thought God was supposed to be good to His people, but look at how prosperous the wicked are. It seems that God is good to them. But then he realizes that they're in trouble, that they're going to be judged on the last day. And then he says in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. All of a sudden, Asaph realized, wait wait a second, they, they might be prosperous, but God is continually with me. He holds my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. In other words, Asaph is saying, you'll never leave me. You're here continually. You'll hold my hand and you will take me right up to glory. You'll be with me till the day I die. And then he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Imagine that night. You see that something's going on with Paul and you ask, what, what happened? And, and he tells you, Jesus is standing right here. He spoke to me. If you were to ask Paul, is there anything else you want, Paul? Is there anything else you need in in this hour as you're in jail? What do you think Paul would have said? There's nothing else I need. Nothing else I need. I know I've been forsaken. There's nothing else I need. And then I love it. The last verse, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He says, you know what's good? Good to be near God. God's right here, always with me, holding my hand. And when Paul saw that, when Paul was told, take courage, you know he was strengthened and he was able to continue on. Because even if everybody else forsake him, Jesus would never leave him nor forsake him and he would rescue him as often as it took. And he knew that he was immortal and invincible till God's work was done for him. Nothing would thwart God's plan for the Apostle Paul. Nobody could stop it. He would continue on until his mission had come to an end. And he was able to do it with great courage and great confidence because of the presence of God in his life. And we can do likewise because he is present with us as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your abiding presence. And Father, my prayer for myself and for this congregation is that You would open our spiritual eyes and we would see that You are here. That Jesus is here. That the Holy Spirit dwells within us. The Holy Spirit will never leave us nor forsake us. He is the deposit guaranteeing our salvation until the day of redemption.
And Jesus is present here. And in just a moment, He is going to feed us with the bread and the wine. And He's going to nourish us. And I pray that we will be nourished because of His presence. Oh, Father, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. So that we can be strengthened and encouraged. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.